0: Alrighty, happy church. It is that time to settle down. Get your Bibles open. We are still taking a break from our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Matthew. If you're new to the church, this is what we do. We start in a book right at the beginning chapter 1, verse 1, and we go all the way through. We've been doing that for 20 years, but from and Time to time, uh, something's going on in the world that everybody's talking about. And right now, we've taken a break to do a series on end times and what is called our blessed hope, the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so uh, we've been doing a few messages uh, in a series entitled Hope for the Last Days, as the Bible puts it. And so let's go to the Lord, ask for uh, his blessing. Now, Father God, as we continue along in this topic of how to be prepared for what the Bible promises, the day of the Lord that we see vastly approaching, God. You, you told your disciples, when you see these things happening, look up because your salvation is drawing near and the Lord is even standing at the door. So, Father, we want to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with you as your word exhorts us to be ready, watchful, and alert for that great day that it not, not come upon us as a thief in the night, but that we would be fully prepared and doing God's will. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I went Googling around for... Uh, The best end-of-the-world movies, (laughs) and I was looking for something interesting to say in this very uh, opening introduction, and I found something. Sure enough, there, it popped up in first place, and it was a bit of a surprise. It was from Good Housekeeping Online. Good housekeeping. I thought, what, 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 why are they talking about the end of the world? And so the title of the article that was in first place there was 20 Best End-of-The-World Movies for If You're Feeling Like You're on a Wild Ride. <laughs> so I started thinking, wow, those desperate housewives there and, uh, you know, are feeling a bit like they're on a ride a wild ride this year, 2020, unprecedented things going on. But the Bible says this, the ride has yet to begin, you see? And so uh, in first place, coming up, there on my screen for the movies, just for fun, I throw this in, uh, was The Wandering Earth. And it was the highest grossing film of 2019 in China, right? And so now that it's on Netflix, more Americans will know about it. And just for fun, it's about a group of scientists trying to physically move the Earth away from the ever-increasing sun. Good luck with that, really. (laughs) Uh, But it made for a really popular film. Thank you for that. Now, so interestingly, Wikipedia records 500 films listed from 1930 forward that have to do with the end times. Apocalypse or Armageddon, the end of the world, 500 of them. Asteroids and viruses and nuclear war and climate crisis, global warming, and all of that. Well, so uh, according to good housekeeping, and I agree with this one line, uh, world-ending movies are a mirror that reflects society's greatest paranoia back at us. Now, I would change paranoia to society's knowing. That we sense as creatures designed and created by God, certain things have been encoded into our souls. And that we sense, and it doesn't take a lot of grace to know, that the present world in its condition cannot last forever, it cannot go on forever. And so there's a sort of knowing that gets reflected in our literature, in our movies, and the like. Uh, that, and that is why you see the gospel themes so many times, and especially in Disney movies, you know And so it's on our minds, it's in our hearts and souls, and we're going to take a look at it here in the Bible. And that is what we've been talking about. Uh, the world ending and Jesus' kingdom beginning. You see, the end of the world is not such a scary thing for Christians because the end of the world, human history as we know it, has to come to a culmination so that the thing that we've been praying for 2,000 years can come to pass, thy kingdom come. And that doesn't happen until he puts an end to human history as we know it, called the Great Tribulation, the last seven years of the planet's history, until it gets a renewal from the one who spoke and created it in the first place. And so we're going to take a look at uh, how God's plan unfolds a little bit here. Do you know 1 in 5 verses in the New Testament? 1 in 5 speak of his coming. That's a lot of references. uh, And there are 2,000 references, indirect and directly, of the second coming in the Bible, and so that which God speaks, He brings to pass. Let's talk about uh, one aspect of that here in Second Peter, chapter three, starting at verse one. We'll we'll make it to verse nine, Lord willing. So Peter begins this chapter by saying, first of all, you must understand that in these last days scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised, ever since our fathers died. Everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately, on purpose, forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens were created, the heavens existed, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged, flooded, and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But don't forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day's like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow. He's not dragging his feet. There's not a a delay in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He's patient, long-suffering with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to the knowledge of the truth and be saved, to repent, to have a change of heart. That's all it takes. Repentance means to do a U-turn in your thinking. How easy is that? Our God is good. He loves us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever simply believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Everything for nothing but trust, simple trust. We can do that. So thank you for that um, text there. And so... Uh, The the passage divides quite nicely, doesn't it? We're going to take a look at it. That's what we do. We walk through it in the first point there, verses 3 and 4. If you're taking notes, the scoffers will be introduced to those who like to mock who they are and what they're saying. And then the second point really is the evidence that they like to uh, simply push out of their minds that there has indeed been a worldwide judgment in the past. And so the idea that there would be a future world judgment isn't as random as you might like to think since we've had one already. That's his evidence. So note takers, it's the scoffers and the evidence. And then we'll finish up with the motivation. God prolonging the cutoff date. He's extending amnesty. (laughs) He's extending the grace period because it breaks God's heart that one person would perish. He wants them to be saved. He says in Ezekiel 33 and verse 11, As surely as I live, I take no delight in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their sins and be saved. That's the heart of God. And every second that you don't see him face to face is a shout out to his compassion and long-suffering and his unwillingness that anybody be lost. And so let's dive in and meet the scoffers. They had their fair share 2,000 years ago of mockers, and we have them today to verses 3 and 4 on the screen. I'll paraphrase. So number one, he says, mockers, Christians, listen up, mockers are a fact of life. You're not doing anything wrong. This is a little extended paraphrase here. You're not doing anything wrong. You're doing something right. That's why they mock Jesus. They're going to mock you. So understand that mockers are a fact of life that continue to come in these last days. By the way, last days officially started at Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension 50 days later because the Bible calls them the last days. Welcome to the last days then, Because there's nothing left on God's calendar except to come back and judge the world. We're in a period of grace called the age of grace. And so we're in the last days of his grace. And so they'll continue, these scoffers, to come here in the last days, making fun of God and his promises and following after their own lusts. Verse 4 They love saying, so where is he? Looking up in the sky, I don't see this Jesus who claimed, I'll be coming on the clouds with glory. Hallelujah, right? (laughs) You know, doesn't it kind of sound like them a little bit? Everything continues on just normal like it always has and just like it always will. So that's what they're saying. You have the text in front of you. So scoffers and so... Peter's been saying, in this case to them, and he opened up at verse one, saying, uh, "You have false teachers. He calls them heretics. and And these are the ones who are scoffing because they want to do away with future moral accountability and judgment. So they want to undermine the teaching of Jesus coming to judge the world. And so they're scoffing, and that's their sharpest tool in the shed to come against. Uh, the sound doctrine of future judgment. And so it's an unpleasant fact of life uh, for the people of God from the dawn of time. There's always been mockers. And so to scoff, really, we don't use that word much. But um, uh, in the Hebrew, it's, uh, the word is lutz in Hebrew. And uh, actually, the Old Testament defines it for us. In Proverbs 21... Here's what it says about scoffers. It says, Scoffer is the name of the arrogant, haughty man who acts with arrogant pride. Now, check that out. Check that out. Scoffer is the name of the proud, arrogant, proud, haughty man who acts with arrogant pride. It's four times listed there. Self-absorbed. It's all about me. No room for God. I'm not bowing at the Holy Trinity of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. I've replaced and exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and it's this. It's not about him, it's about this Trinity, me, myself, and I. And so, yeah, that's a terrible thing because that's called idol worship. Sometimes. You know, we always think of bowing down in front of a piece of stone or wood or something. But to bow down and do your own will instead of God's is to worship an idol called self. And so... Uh, Yeah, so they mock. I mean, it's a verbal assault. It's deliberate act of aggression. It's for people who have nothing to say, who sense that you could be right by your message or your lifestyle. And so instead of uh, wondering uh, or living with the conviction that they're not living the right way, they just fire a fiery dart of contempt and try to uh, forget about the truth that way. And so no one knows more about scoffers than, than I do. I was a really good one, some of you as well, before I was a believer. I mean, I would give Christians a tongue lashing I remember, to my shame, of being 18 years old on the streets, in the city, partying with my friends, and we walked by a group of Christians handing out Bibles and tracts. And everybody else, all my buddies, wanted to keep moving. But see, God was calling me. <laughs> and so I was like, oh, wait a second, guys. Let's talk to these Bible-thumping holier-than-thou. And I let them have it, you know? no. Three months later, I'm sitting down with some guy, and he lets me have it. He just teasing me, and, and, it, and it really stung, some of the things he said. And I remember thinking, oh, this is how it felt. This is how it feels. And I, and I would say to people, how do you go from scoffing and hating the gospel to defending it and loving it? How do you explain this? You know, And I told you about that before. He said, you had a nervous breakdown. You know, I let. oh, so you have a nervous breakdown and things improve in your life? (laughs) (laughs) Would to the Lord everybody have a nervous breakdown then? You know, and so, yeah. So we know about mocking. And by the way, before we move on, and I tend to get kind of stuck on this here, Jesus said, come on, guys. They hated me. And you're my little Christs running around, imitating me, talking like me doing christ-like things if they hated me they're gonna hate you if they mocked me and he told his disciples guess what we're going to jerusalem they're gonna mock me there it is they're gonna scoff and they did what did they do oh they mocked him said oh you're a king okay let's put a purple robe on you Strip him mock him let's put the, the king's robe on him let's put a crown on you hey guys See that thorn bush over there? Make him a crown. Make the king a crown. He wants to be a crown. Here's a scepter, O king. And they bowed before him and said, Hail, king of the Jews. And you want people to applaud you and receive you with popularity? You preach the same gospel. They're going to treat you the same. And so I, I hear him saying, look, first of all, just get it through your head. You're not going to be popular out there. They're going to mock you and it's not about you. Here's the deal. Where's the sign of this promised coming? He promised. Oh. See? They know who promised it and their problem is not with us. Ultimately it's with him. And that's what Jesus tells us. Don't take it so personally. You didn't make this stuff up. What you're proclaiming came from me. And the problem, their reaction is against me, not you. If it was your, uh, came from you. If you were the author of it, then you would have the problem. So, and by the way, I've written down here, they've condemned themselves because they admit they know that the Son of God's claim. But they've rejected it. Where's the promise? Where's the coming he promised? And so God's going to judge them by their own words. Oh, you knew I promised that? There it is. And so uh, we see Peter here that he's saying that they have more important things to follow than the truth and the teaching of God. And you see there in your text, they follow their own evil desires, their lusts, their cravings of their own Will and so, uh, so right there in your verse, you see, it's not an intellectual problem with unbelievers with God. It, it's not an intellectual problem at all. It's a moral problem, right? And so they, they really, the, they, and it's a characteristic of the last days. There's no room for Christ. There's no desire to follow Him. Instead, here's what Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3 about these terrible times. He says, no, they're not going to be following God in truth, but mark this, there'll be terrible times in the last days. And here's why they don't follow the truth. People love themselves instead. They're lovers of money and boastful and proud, and look at me, abusive, disobedient to parents, no authority structures in their worldview, ungrateful, unholy, Without love, unforgiving, slanderous, always cutting people down, criticizing, lying about people that slander, without self control, brutal, violent, unfeeling, not lovers of the good, treacherous, cannot be trusted, rash, no thinking, just acting and responding, conceited, full of themselves, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. Well, oh, how Christian is that? Very, because Paul the Apostle is teaching, it's the Bible. Have nothing, to keep your distance. Pray, love, but don't link arms with people like that. So having a form of godliness means they were going to talk spiritual. Like I have my own path to God, you know, and they just kind of have their own gospel, but it's denying the power means there's no substance, there's no moral transformation, there's no newness of life, there's no Holy Spirit. It's just a religious facade of sorts that they talk it, but there's there's nothing there. And so These are the mockers. They're following their own agenda instead of the truth about God. Uh, They're following a a different leader, the Pied Piper, of their own sinful nature. And so back now to the content of what they're scoffing. And uh, uh, here's a quick synopsis given. Here's what they're up in arms about uh, is the day of judgment and Christ's literal appearance. Peering. And so you know the weirdest part is where is he? You know, the answer to the question is he's waiting for you. That you want to know where he is or why he's taken so long. He's waiting for you so that you don't perish. The one mocking, you see, that is just such an irony, but It's kind of what they've always been saying back in the Old Testament. You have that, where is he, kind of mentality, mocking. Uh, Jeremiah 17.5, Jeremiah said, Listen, you guys have treated God with such contempt over so many years. God is going to raise up Nebuchadnezzar from Iraq. Modern-day Iraq is Babylon. He's going to come those 500 miles, and he and his army is going to destroy Jerusalem and take everybody away. There'll be no Jews in Israel will all be exiled. So time went on, time went on, and in Jeremiah 17, they're, they're all like, where's the sign of King Nebuchadnezzar coming? Well, go and you'll still see the destruction of what King Nebuchadnezzar did over there. Or you've got Micah, and they were saying the same thing in Ezekiel. Here's what they were saying in Ezekiel's day. Where's the days of, of his Judgment. The days go by, and every vision of yours comes to nothing. Except, of course, it was fulfilled. It just seemed like it was uh, a long in coming. And so, I love Numbers chapter 23 and verse 19 because does God speak and then not act? Come on, He's God. If He said it, it's gonna happen, and it will happen. Just as he says, and so their stinking thinking here is that they're accusing, and here's the basis for it, they're making this up, but they say, you know, God has never intervened in the world like that ever before and ever since our fathers died, which could mean their fathers and grandfathers at the time. Hey, you know, it's been 40, 50 years, and my father died and his father died, and where is he? You guys been saying he's coming, right? Or it could mean since the fathers 2,000 years earlier, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are called the fathers of the faith, the, of the Jewish people, the patriarchs, right? Ever since then, 2,000 years, where is he? He hasn't done anything that, uh, that grand of a scale. or, And they say this, and they go back to creation another 2,000 years earlier. So creation's at 4,000 B.C., and they go back to the dawn of time, and they say, quote, ever since creation, God has never stepped into human history to bring this kind of worldwide judgment. And Peter has something to say. Andrew's little brother has a response, and he says, oh, really? Oh, since the day of creation, everything's just been hunky-dory? Really? You think so? Well, let us let me remind you of something. And he, he calls them out on the carpet for having... Self-induced spiritual amnesia. A willingness to push aside the facts that would tell your soul, get right with God, man. Get right with God. But we have this tendency as sinful beings to take what we know and lessons we've learned along the way that are prompting us toward God and and, and, and push them aside and neglect them and forget about them. And he says, you're doing it. You're doing it because they knew about the flood. So let's Move on to point number two here, verses five through seven. So he says, but these haters deliberately, on purpose, intentionally forget about Genesis chapter six, Genesis chapter seven, Genesis chapter eight. Long ago, the flood that destroyed the world, not some of the world, all of it, it was a worldwide event. Everything in the world died except eight people That's a worldwide event, you know, that you seem to to, to, uh, so easily forget about and overlook. So he says, and by, verse 7, and by the same authority, by the same word that promised the flood is now promising fire on that day of judgment and once again destroy ungodly who have rejected the only way of escape. There's only one name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved. God made a way in love. He begs people. We are like his ambassadors begging on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become right with God. Boy, if anybody ends up perishing, it's not because God didn't try. Uh, God has done everything within the will of God and the power of God more than what we would have expected that he would become a man and let them strip him and spin on him and lay down on a piece of wood that I like to say he created. Colossians 1:15 says by him Christ all things were created. That's love. And he says nobody takes my life they didn't come and win. I came and I laid it down in love because I loved those who were nailing me to that cross. Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. So yeah, the end of the world talk, it sounds really harsh. But it's only for those who neglect the truth that their souls really know. And that's really the point here is that they know. Romans chapter 1 says, I'm afraid to tell you that there's no such thing as an atheist. Romans chapter 1 says, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine uh, nature are clearly seen. That, so much so, that, quote, men are without excuse. People are without excuse when they say there's no God because it's so obvious. God encoded his, his... Existence in the things he made. He put his fingerprints on everything so that our human souls, and then on top of that, he speaks to our conscience. In Romans chapter one, again says, the truth of God is plain to them, the opposition, because, quote, God has made it plain to them. And if God has made it plain to somebody, the truth, then you have the truth and your conscience culpable. And so this, you see it in your text there. In verse 5, unbelief is willing. You see, they knew the truth, but they have chosen deliberately uh, to disbelieve. Now, here's the thing. When the Bible talks about unbelievers, all through the book of Acts, check this out. It says they refused to believe. Not just that they didn't believe. Do you see the language there, how important that is? Unbelief is a sin. Unbelief is a knowledge of the truth that your soul and the Holy Spirit convicts. He comes alongside every human being, and he convicts them. And every single unbeliever you know knows way more than they're letting on to. The Bible says that they know. But they've pushed it so down deep that some of them don't even know that they know anymore, but that they still have a knowing. And so uh, one writer put it this way, these men are fully aware that there was a worldwide flood, but they pushed that to the back of their minds, discarding that fact, along with any other reason that would suggest God's word is true and that they must part with their sin and surrender to the Lord. So that's kind of human nature, you know, just I don't want to be thinking about the thing that will push me toward the harder road of discipline, moral accountability. I'd rather forget those kinds of things and live in a world of make-believe so that I'm more comfortable with my decision to do life my own way. Way. So that said, verses 5 and 6 are a little lesson, <laughs> a science lesson. It's really cool. Nobody knows what it means. Nobody will ever know what it means because it's how God created the world. So in Genesis chapter 1, he's talking about the same God that created the world out of waters. So in Genesis 1, it says that God separated the waters when, and, and out of the waters and from the water came the earth, dry land, right? Right? And so what the point of your verses there, five and six, that the earth was born through the waters and out of the waters. The same God gave the same command to the waters and the process to implode back the creator uncreated because he was so grieved that that man's heart had become so bent on evil that Quote, every inclination of man's heart was for evil and evil alone. And God said, I'm broken hearted. I regret making them. But Noah found grace. And God kept the flood around, allowed the flood to happen, I should say, to point to a coming judgment at the end of the age of grace. Uh, Let me tell you this, that Jesus is the one who compares and and says, oh, I'm coming again, and I'm going to judge the entire world. And there's never any uh, tribulation like it before, never again. It will be a day where if those days weren't cut short, nobody would survive. Talking about the coming judgment. And then he says, listen, let me make sure you understand that this is really going to happen. And he goes back to the flood. A real historical little flood. Let me show it to you. Matthew 24, starting in verse 37. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were clueless, living their life, doing all that stuff. Verse 39, and they knew nothing. They were clueless about what would happen until the flood came and destroyed them all. And then here's the line that connects you back to the flood before. He says, that's how it's exactly going to be when I appear and bring the day of the Lord. You see, it happened once before. It, and Jesus speaking, it's going to happen in the same way, but only not with water, with fire. Which fire just kind of a fiery ordeal. And yes, it will be fire. And at the end of Revelation chapter 16, uh, 17 and 18, he is going to destroy and wrap things up with fire to renew an earth while we're in heaven. When we're with him, he recreates everything. But first it goes up. Talk about global warming, folks. That's, that's going to be one globe that's warm. All right, so it happened before. That's his point, And it's going to happen again, something that they love to. Is that my timer? my wife. No, just kidding. (laughs) All right. Hey, I'm going to show you another verse that ties this all in, but only he goes to another evidence. And so that's the point we're in evidence, right? So let's look at the chapter before. There's a nice paragraph that will blow your minds. He's going to take the worldwide flood and then he's going to take Sodom and Gomorrah. And he's going to say, oh, there was another, there's another evidence that God will bring judgment. So he says earlier, one chapter, if God didn't spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but now here's the hope because we're Noah <laughs> and we're Lot in the story. But he protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others. If he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes, and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. There it is. What was one of the purposes there? Jesus is saying, let me, let me show you a sermon illustration of what's to come with fire. But he rescued Lot, a man who was right with God, who was distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawlessness there for that purpose man who was right with God, living among them day after day, was tormented in his righteous soul by these lawless deeds he saw and heard. Yeah, we know how that goes. Verse 9, if this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly, us, from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on that great day of judgment. So he's saying, look, folks, (laughs) it's the great day of the Lord, the day of judgment, so far removed so random of a thought when you look back and see the flood or sodom and gomorrah and he says and take heart by the way because he says god knew how to rescue lot out of an area that was going to be judged the whole region with fire so he took lot out just like he will remove the church from harm's way before the great and terrible, awesome day of the Lord comes upon the whole world. Jesus said to the church in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 10, I will keep you from the hour of great tribulation that's coming upon the whole world. Well, how in the world is he going to do that? How is he going to do that if it comes on the whole world? Well, he has to do what he did with Lot. He went in, took him out, and up to a mountainside and he says, the angel says in Genesis 19, hurry up man, I cannot do a thing until you are safe and that's the way it's going to be with the day of the Lord you're not going to see any of it except you will have box seats in heaven and where you can be safe and watch while you're enjoying caramel popcorn (laughs) (laughs) or at least I will and I'm not sharing no (laughs) No, that's not an, a good attitude for heaven. <laughs> now I, I will be sharing, trust me. I will be brand new. And so, yeah. Uh, so let's get moving. What's up with God taking so much time? Well, you know, let me finish up here. You know, somebody said to me just recently, and they say this so many times, I invite everybody I meet to The Rock. I just do. And uh, so I'm inviting this guy. I think it was at the market again. And he goes, uh, if I go in your church, fire will fall down. (laughs) And catch your whole church on fire. There'll be an explosion. And I said, first of all, don't flatter yourself. (laughs) First of all, don't flatter yourself, because we have a lot worse wicked sinners than you come through. And I said, second of all, Jesus was the substitute for your sins, and God let the fire fall on him first. And so we are not going to see any fire who have hidden ourselves under the protective covering of the blood of God's own son. We are not appointed to wrath. So he says, comfort one another with these words. So finishing up here with verses 8 and 9, he says, Whatever you do, dear friends, keep this in mind. God's timetable, a lot different than ours. A thousand years to him, it's like a day. A day's like a thousand years. He's not delaying. He's long-suffering. He's waiting. He's waiting for you and for me, right? John Calvin, a great theologian. He got a little out there, a little extreme at times. I'm kind of a middleist. I'm in the middle. But John Calvin, I appreciate him. Uh, He said, oh, what wondrous love our God would have all sinners in heaven. Check this out. He says, but alas, he will not force himself on those who would find heaven more like a hell. You see, you know, there are people who would not want to go to heaven if they knew Jesus was there and Christians are there and conservative thinking is there. Sorry. Sorry. I mean, it's everything that you don't like. Why would you want to go? So why are you banging on the door after he shuts it and the judgment comes down? It's certainly, you will not like anything about this place. The only reason you want in now is to escape the consequences of your bad behavior. But he waits. He waits. Now, I'm wondering... I'm wondering uh, if God would have come for us three months ago. Is there somebody here who would say, well, I would have been left behind because I just got saved within the last three months. Anybody? Okay. Well, maybe. Maybe one. Or maybe they were scratching their ear. Uh, How about the last year? If Jesus came a year ago, you would have been left behind because you weren't in the Lord yet. One, two, three, four... Five? You would have been in the great tribulation. Okay, let's go five years. Five years. If Jesus would have appeared for the church and we all got raptured five years ago, who'd be in the tribulation right now? Raise your hand. Yeah, yeah. you're like, you're not sure. Probably. <laughs> yeah, it is, uh, it is a, a, a harsh reality to think of a world of 21 judgments, no escape. You can still get saved. But a world where mountains will be leveled and islands disappear. A third of the world at one time on fire. Oceans not supporting life. The entire oceans, by the end, not one thing could live in the oceans. Asteroid pictured going into the oceans. The Earth kind of rocked out of its orbit. The sun, moon, and stars not shining properly. That's why he's waiting. He doesn't want anybody left behind. Yes, you can still get saved, but it'll cost you. It'll cost you. Off with your head. But it'll be worth it. Amen? You'll be together with us. So if we all disappear, folks, and you're not with us, you know what to do, right? Amen? Okay. (laughs) Moving on. And so... Yeah, Jesus, here's the motivation. It's love, love, love. Yeah, Jesus tells a parable. He says, hey, there's this king in heaven. I wonder who he could be talking about. He's throwing a party because his son's getting married. Ha! Ah, that's Jesus, and we're the ones. And he's saying, I just want you to invite. Go out and invite everybody <clears throat> free of charge. Lavish celebration. The king, come to the castle. All you peasants, come on in for free. And they come back, and they say, boss, you know what? We're telling them, we well, nobody wants to come. They're too busy. Uh, they're buying new oxen. They're buying new plant and vineyards. And they're getting married. And they have no time for you and your son and your party. And the king says, go back out and make them come in. Go look under the bushes. It says, go up to the highways and byways and the bushes. And then just find people that my house be full you see, you know how much he loves us? You look at the cross. Look at the cross. Wow. When I look at that cross, I know how God has seriously got a thing for us. He's got, he, he loves us and doesn't want anybody to perish. And so he says, hey, by the way, a thousand years to God is like a day, a day. In other words, this is, this is the story here. God's outside of time. One British commentator from the 1700s said this, all time is nothing before him because in the presence of the eternal God, nothing is long or short. He accomplishes his good purposes at his good pleasure when it makes sense to him, when it serves his purposes. And so, you know, the concepts of time, depending on who you are, it's long or short, right? Now, Do you remember being a kid? Dave, when you were a kid, how long was summer vacation? (laughs) It was a long time. First of all, for the record, we were off the first week of June, and we didn't go back till after Labor Day sometime, right? So amen? (laughs) That was a long time. But more than that, I remember going on the bus riding home. I was just thinking, it'll be forever since I have to come back to the school. Right now? Summer? By the way, summer's over. (laughs) Summer is over right now as I speak. Where did that, how did that happen? Now it's like six sermons for me, and summer's pretty much done. It just goes by so fast, right? But for kids, you know, you tell the kid, you know, yeah, you can have your dessert in an hour. An hour! (laughs) It's so long, and that's how we are. Now, don't you be getting discouraged thinking, oh, well, if it's a day, it can be a 1,000 years. Maybe we've got another 1,000 years to wait. No, you don't. You know why? Let me cheer you up. He's at the door. You know how I know he's at the door? Because he said he's at the door when he gave the list in Matthew 24. And I'll quote the Lord. He said, when you see these things, and he listed a dozen things, go through the dozen things. He even names pestilence, which means pandemic. Luke 21, check it out. He uses the word. It's in the list. Check, 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 check. Arise in anarchy. It's in the list. Lawlessness abounding. It's in the list. Earthquakes, fires, famine. It's all there. Check, 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 check. He says, when you see that, know this. Look up because I'm close. Okay, check, we got that. But here's the best of all. Israel is God's super sign. For 2,000 years, none of this could have been coming to fruition because there was no Israel. For 2,000 years, you could say, oh, you're crazy. Where's Israel? Oh, you can't say that now. Because miraculously, 2,000 years later, two millennia, he brings them all back, and there's a nation there. Check. There it is. Oh, let me give you one more piece of information. A hundred years ago, (laughs) Revelation wouldn't make sense. How would you have the technology to stop people from buying and selling? How would you monitor everybody in the world? How could the whole world look somewhere, the whole world, and see somebody's face and hear how they're ruling the world? How would we have the technology to do all of those amazing things 50 years ago? Nope. But you can do it now. And that's lining up with Israel, which is lining up with Middle East treaties that are going on right now, with a temple that's ready to be rebuilt at the top of the Temple Mount. Did you Google Temple Institute? They are ready with a Sanhedrin, with Pharisees and Sadducees and a high priest. They're ready. They're petitioning the government. Can we just throw something up there? We'll do a makeshift little temple up there. How long would that take? Because we've got to have a third temple. Because the Antichrist, Mr. Wonderful, who solves all the world's problems after we leave, he goes in and proclaims himself God in there. But how far away is that? They're ready. They have the offering, they have everything good to go. They're just waiting for the go, the word, and boom. So, my friends, yeah, a day may be a thousand years to the Lord, but we don't have a thousand years left, maybe a thousand seconds. <laughs> And so with that, he comes up, and I'll just close with this. He gives six exhortations. I won't read them. I'll just read the word that he says. Here's the question, and this is how we close. In light of all of this, how should we be living? And then he answers the question with about one, two, three, four, five exhortations. Here they are. Number one, he says we should be living holy lives. Holy, don't let the word scare you. It just means totally devoted. It it means separated from your sin and the worldly ways, separated to God. It's like a guy who loves his wife or a wife that's so devoted to the husband. She's holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, is the idea of holiness. Okay, it's separated. You can do that. It's about loving. If you love somebody, you're just, you want to be not offending them. Number two, godly godly he's god is bent on making us like jesus that's like an overarching theme of the new testament and so everything going on in your life the good that is working toward is to conform you to the image of jesus in other words to make you as patient as christ as loving as christ right so in the moments where we have a choice we are to cooperate with the holy spirit to character development Right, that's what we should be in the process of when He appears. And then uh, number three, two more to go. He says to be spotless. Now that's a scary word. All it means is this, and here's the sense of it: God does the 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 uh, action of keeping us spotless, and here's how He does it: If we walk in the light as He's in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, purifies us from all sin in other words when you're just living right walking right with God you have no double life no no hidden agendas no secret sins like that you're just you you have your flaws but you're walking with God in fellowship God's blood of his son is cleansing us we're confessing our sins one to another to him this kind of is a cleansing thing and in that regard he keeps us spotless the next word is You should be blameless. That just means the direction of your heart. You should not be intentionally thinking, I know I shouldn't do this, but I'm doing it anyway. Right? That You're not blameless there. Blameless doesn't mean perfect. It just means there's no intent to sin against the Lord. You're just, for all intents and purposes, you belong to him, and you're going to do your best. That's, what, that's all he's asking for. And then the last one I love, he says, if this is the way things are going to come down at the end, shouldn't you be sober and alert and at peace with him? At peace with him just means, you know, you're not doing things that offend him. He's not nagging you. He's not on your case about something. You're not trying to do something that you know you shouldn't be doing. He's not constantly tapping you on the shoulder and saying, hey, or your conscience is telling you something. No, you're at peace. I love the hymn, and we close with this. It's an old one from the 1700s. I love this with these words Nothing between my soul and my Savior, none of this world's delusive dream. I have renounced all sinful pleasure. Jesus is mine. There's nothing between. And here's the refrain. Nothing between my soul and my Savior, so that his blessed face may be seen. Nothing preventing the least of his favor. Keep the way clear. Let nothing between. Let's pray. Father, that is easier said than su- done sometimes. God, we pray that you would help us help us to abide with you, to be close to you, to, to love you with all of our hearts, mind, soul, and strength because that's really can sum up everything we just said to love you with all of our hearts God, to stay in close connection and talk to you all day long and lay down our will for your goodwill. God, help us. We're prone to wander, God, prone to leave the God we love. Lord, that's what we feel sometimes. But God, your spirit can keep us. Now to him who is able to keep us from falling and to present us faultless before the throne. To you be all the glory and honor forever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.